Live from the UK, broadcasting around the world. Around the world. You're listening to the Mike Drop Club, hosted by Douglas Hammond Message received. Message received. You do not need to know what you need. What you need. Just engage with the podcast feed. Just engage with the podcast feed. Providing weekly insights into cool stuff we've read, saw, did, or heard about what made us say, wow, eureka, damn, nothing is off limits. If it motivates and inspires you to reach your goals, then it shall be discussed. Featuring guest interviews from high performers and people of influence and weekly awards for the best mic drop moment. This podcast is guaranteed to leave you pumped up for the week ahead. Don't just live life, make life boom. Hi, everybody, it's Doug Samadishi. Another episode of the Mic Drop Club. Today, I'm super, super pumped. This is the third installment a conversation that we started quite a few weeks back with Andrew Rolfe, a transformational guru. Years of wisdom in um, delivering change. And today, being a third one, I want to talk about, we want to discuss with you a, a topic that is so, so important. And it's in keeping with what we have seen in terms of HS2, um, that delay. So let me frame it properly, yeah? How to avoid decision-making paralysis in transformation. All too often, when we see transformation programs, there's a tendency for the team to just go with the flow. Just keep going with the flow without making any effective decisions in light of new information new data flows that come back to them, like the feedback loop. The, the fact that it's inaction and that, that inaction causes a decision-making paralysis for the executive team. Do you, do, you consider, do you continue on with the program or do you stop it? And we saw that played out with HS2 in the UK. So with that being said, I want to bring Andrew back into the studio. Andrew, how are you doing? You okay? I'm good, thanks, Douglas. Good to be here again. Yeah, it's like riding a bike, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's been a couple of weeks, but uh, yeah, the muscle memory is still there. Fantastic, fantastic. And I was just teeing up that today. Let's let's let's, let's approach a subject about um, avoiding decision making paralysis when it comes to transformation. Yeah. And the fact that inaction yeah. is still a choice and how does it play out on some of the projects that you have um, um, consulted over and um, led on? I think that point about um, the paralysis uh, is a choice, is a really important mindset to start with because people often forget that doing nothing is as is a choice. We're always thinking about, oh, we've got to do something. You know, do we cut the red wire or do we cut the blue wire? Actually, not cutting any wire might have 
a better outcome or it might have a worse outcome, but doing nothing is a choice. And you also mentioned analysis paralysis, which I think we all have encountered it in at least one project. And sometimes you encounter it in multiple projects. And usually what's going on is a group of people are looking for more evidence or more data points for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's because they want to delay putting off the decision, taking a decision that's difficult. If we gather more data, we'll know more and therefore we'll make a better decision. Sometimes um, it can be due to the kind of politics of the people who are taking the decision. So somebody might want to trump the information that everyone else has got by coming up with better data. You know, my be- my data set is better than yours, and therefore if we use that, we're going to make a better decision. But usually the, the you know, no decision is worse than a bad decision. People are – people often – when interviewed, often look back on things that have happened, big events, life events, or things that happen in the workplace. And the thing that they have the most regret over is not doing something as opposed to doing something that didn't work out. There's always that sort of, well, if we did it, we tried, it didn't work. Hey ho, that's life. You know, not everything does. But if you don't do it, you're always left with that nagging sense of regret, that sort of if only. Mm. And HS2 is a really timely example because the not to get into all the politics of it, I don't think I don't think that's relevant here. But from a transformation point of view, you've nearly always encountered that situation where you've been in a meeting and someone will say, well, look, we've come this far. We've come this far. We've invested all this so far. We might as well see it through to the end. And this kind of this attitude of seeing something through to the end, no matter what, can be the thing that can break a business. You know, HS2 is a is a big decision. It may be a decision that the Conservative Party comes to regret. It may, you know, there are so many implications Absolutely. for that decision. But you can see exactly what's going on there. We've come this far, so we've got to see it through. Or we take a really difficult decision and say, Do you know what, it's never going to give us what we wanted. You know, the, the situation has changed. The decision we took a decade ago to build this thing Life's moved on. The world's moved on. We don't need a rail- we don't need a high speed railway anymore. And I'm not, you know, I'm not sort of getting into the sure. whether we do or we don't, but the decision making part of it. Sure, and, and that's a very interesting example because if you take a look at traditional data loops and feedback loops that we have in transformation pro- projects, um, this is a perfect ex- example where the benefits were were marginal in the first instance of the HS2 anyway, a shaving of Mm -hmm. the time from from London to to Manchester by 10 minutes, you know, fractional. But then it was all the other Mm -hmm. add-on benefits that eventually you might connect east to west with all the infrastructure that you're going to build. So you take a look at data points and how data points can become so convoluted on a on a on a massive um, transformational industrial level piece project like HS two yeah that your feedback look is your feedback loop might take ten years to before it gets to the executive board that oh my god it's a serious serious issue 
you know? Um, so yes. how can we simplify um, there's almost like the matching and decision-making processes for these data, data points across a project? How can we simplify that so the feedback loop comes as, as, as clearly and concisely and in a timely way, like you're putting water down a, a, a sink, you know, the water goes down the hole if you don't put, put a plug. It's that simple. How do we simplify the feedback loops? Yeah. So I, I think the first thing is to recognise that decision-making is a skill and it needs to be one that we learn how to make decisions. I think the one of the problems is we've forgotten how to make decisions. We're not taught it at school. We don't really learn it in the workplace. You sort of pick it up as you go along. So you can always spot somebody who's very decisive. They're good at managing situations. Um, they're good at spotting where those feedback loops are occurring and taking those signals and using that to make their decisions. So I, I think the skill of decision-making needs to be considered as a as a as a business skill it needs to be taught and people need to need to respect it as such the next thing about about feedback loops is you've got to you've got to be able to see what the kind of implications of your decision are so some decisions are quite straightforward you know do I do I paint my front door red or do I paint it blue? You know, well, I like blue, so I'm going to paint it blue. Mm. The only person in the decision-making loop is me. I see the door. I like the door. The feedback is immediate. So it, it, those kind of things are really simple. What we're dealing with in transformation is complexity. We're dealing with a decision or a series of decisions that maybe once you've taken that decision, you can't go back to it. You've, you've got to kind of move on. We're going to buy this system over that one. We're going to shut down this piece of technology and replace it with something else. Or we're going to create a new team that can take advantage of some new technology. These are things that you might not be able to undo once you've started them. So understanding where there's where there's no kind of going back and where there could be an option to explore. And that's why you get analysis paralysis, because people don't want to take a decision that they can't reverse. They don't want to be on the hook mm. for that. That's a kind of scary place. Mm. And I think that's... So where we're talking feedback loops, you've got to... The, the skill of... of we're, we both come from engineering backgrounds, so we know all about feedback loops and building amplifiers and electronics and all that kind of stuff. The skill in, in having a good feedback loop is having a good signal that you can put it into the right part of the system so that you can do something with it. There's no point in all this all this signal going nowhere and you've got a feedback loop, but it's not it's not affecting the on the, the sort of ongoing program of work no, i think no, those are the those are the things that strike me most no, no, about, absolutely about it. because in if we humanize the transformational piece we take the signal and and those data points now become people become operations become departments mm -hmm. all with their own hierarchy all with their own individual sponsors the, the executive sponsor for hs2 would have been the government so by the time information got to the government to the point that it got critical how many of these mini executive groups were, in effect, a victim of decision-making paralysis? Because, yes, they're, they're all, they're, each one is symbiotic. 
they rely on another one to exist, yes. another service to exist, you know, and that, that codependency um, added another layer of complexity. So the signals could have been coming in and just like the old Mario game, you see all these pipes of water going down or whatever the case may be. Um, to the point you cannot make a decision, a rational decision as to what pipe you need to close or reroute, mm-hmm. you know, because you're hemorrhaging money at a point that you're not able to add value quick enough for the money that the money that's drained, you know, and these projects have to break even. So mm-hmm. we see that um, in many other projects, HS2 is just a prime example of how that played out in terms of, I'm sure when they do a, um, you know, lessons, lessons to be learnt, you know, inquiry as to what went wrong, it, it's going to mm-hmm. touch upon some of the points that you quite rightfully have, have raised there. You know, it's t- way too complicated. If you look at a traditional Prince2 project management um, process, you know, feedback loops should, have, should be embedded into that process and they're very simple. But yeah. something like this is, is, is frighteningly complicated. A room full of experts is often one of the most um, dangerous place to, places to be when it comes to decision making. So if you look at the way that maybe a, a novice would take a decision, you might think that a novice, someone who's unfamiliar with the, with the discipline, would overanalyze it. They'd be reluctant to make a decision. Actually, the reverse is true. So novices, when faced with a, with a decision, often jump on the first thing that seems plausible. So, and, and because they're novices, the reason they jump on it is they want to make a decision and they don't, re- they don't think about the sort of downstream implications. And they think that maybe the decision that they take can be easily reversed. Okay, well, that didn't work. Never mind. We'll do, we'll do this. You know, oh, that didn't work either. Well, we'll try the other. A room full of experts is where you get analysis paralysis. And that's often what we're dealing with in um, transformation programs. Senior executives who know the domain, they know the problem space, and they just want to get more and more information so that they can, you know, they can kind of Mm. feel reassured. And I'm sure that in, you know, HS2 didn't lack for expertise in infrastructure projects, in rail technology, in all of the things that you would need in order to pull off something of that scale and that audacity. Mm. But that's where analysis paralysis comes in. And, you know, you can sometimes, you know, so in the the case of HS2, okay, you've got a room full of experts, you've got an analysis paralysis. Sometimes you have a room full of experts and it can lead to a life or death situation. So you look at, say, the Challenger disaster. There you've got a lot of people very knowledgeable about their their domains, you know, people, um, suppliers and experts and companies who, who... are providing all of the equipment and the subsystems that go into making the the um, Challenger shuttle. Yet something as simple as this one O-ring that was a key part of it failed. And why did that? Why did that fail? And why was it not noticed? Well, that's kind of almost the reverse of analysis paralysis, where the feedback loop exists. They knew that there was this problem. They had seen it in the data, but there was a 
a, a groupthink, a bias in the challenger situation where mm. what had become an acceptable risk was rising and rising and rising. We were getting more and more overconfident at our ability to launch and return this device to the to earth yet the data was um was telling telling everybody otherwise and there was this whole bias to get it finished get it launched you know who wants to be the person who raises their hand and says actually no i i think we shouldn't well nobody wants to kind of stick out like that human you talked about the systems and the decision making being human well there's you know the rocket's obviously a piece of technology, but the people who launch it are humans and nobody wants to be in that position. So you've got the groupthink dynamic going on where suddenly unacceptable risks are deemed acceptable by a group of people. Again, it's back to the feedback loop. The feedback's broken. Nobody's noticing the signals. Yeah, absolutely. So in a sense, we have the coming together of two competing concepts here as i'm seeing it you've got mm -hmm. the analysis paralysis that's born out of data yeah um yeah. being able to analyze that data and make sense of it is where you got the initial paralysis it's just too much data if you think about it there from uh, the environmental yeah. considerations the technology the the materials the labor there's the um the just in time supply and demand you know the yeah. cost fluctuations, you know, all of that. COVID happened in that process as yes. well. You know, yeah. introduction of AI, you know, competing new technologies, more yeah. laws. What you build now might not be sufficient yeah. for what you want to um, end up running out with. All of these things are, are creating their own data points, their own signal pulsating. And you can mm -hmm. get stuck in, as you rightfully said, in the analysis paralysis just on that. Like, okay. Yeah. What does this mean? You actually might not, we might not have the tools to crunch the data. So you're stuck in analysis paralysis. Then on top of that, I think where I really want to um, um, get your steer on, get your view on is the next phase, which is the decision making paralysis. So just imagine you, yeah. oh, you understand now what's happening here. Yeah. How, how we, um, vetting and and create an environment for effective decision making to combat this decision making paralysis that comes because you 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 kind of like sense for as outsiders looking in on the HS2 it's always been there mm -hmm. and about of the last 10 years yeah. it's been there and there about right so there's a sense of that it was just taken along it just mm -hmm. taken along I remember with the chat, um, the Euro, um, uh, the Channel Tunnel being built. There were strategic yeah. milestones that were released to the press along that journey. It was massive to the point that they finally bought, bought, um, board on the other side or either side, um, they, 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 yeah. they reached their destination, right? With HS2, you got none of that. So there was a, there's a danger that this was just limping. Into, mm -hmm. into, so I think the analysis process has been going on for a very, very long time. So each, each passing administration will ask those questions. What are these figures? What is happening? And there's nobody mm -hmm. that can answer the question comprehensively. Yeah. 
So, so what? How yeah. would you? How can we bring about more effective decision making individuals? You talk about people that are less invested. The the um the novice, I think you described. Yeah. But as yeah, but you need, you might need somebody even more senior. And what sort of skills enable somebody to be an effective decision maker? What sort of attributes would they need to have? Yeah, I think the so one of the things that I find a lot with transformation projects is that consistency is really important in the decision-making team. If you've got um, people coming and going, if you've got senior appointments being made that c- come into the frame, it's really hard to get that efficiency of decision-making. And the the you know the problem with hs2 is that you know this is something that's run over decades you know how many prime ministers have we had since you know the first since it was first conceived it it it's it's taken so long so you find there that people don't have the kind of vested interest well it wasn't their project they're just kind of seeing it through from now to the next phase really for good decision making i think one of the attributes is consistency the person who's Kind of, in, or the group of people involved in kicking this off are going to be the group of people that are there at the end of it, and that's one of my arguments for kind of shorter, shorter time span projects to try and get transformation done quickly is is really important. Now you can't always do quick transformations. You know, something like building a railway it takes it takes a long time. Um, the other attribute of good decision makers is that they know how to. They're not searching for perfection. They know when good enough is is acceptable. They're able to. Uh, I'll give you this example, right? My wife and I spend a lot of time arguing over which Greek island we want to visit for our holidays. There are two thousand Greek islands. <laughs> two hundred of them are inhabited, right? And they're all lovely. Every one of them is populated by lovely people. In the summertime, the sun shines, the food is great, the water's great, everything's great. It's all better than where we are now. So it doesn't really matter which one we go to. We might as well just kind of put them all the names in a hat and pick one at random because it's going to be nicer than where we are in the summertime. right? So from a, a business point of view, knowing that kind of not getting stuck in the kind of dilemma of is this island better than that island just any island is better than where we are now is one of the skills being able to kind of keep people on that and not let them let them kind of get kind of drawn into the fine detail because that's where analysis paralysis comes ah hang on a minute i've got a map of this island and i've got a map of that island and this one looks nicer than that one so being able to kind of keep keep that moving and then the other piece is when necessary, being able to take control of a situation and almost sort of dominate the decision. So it's easy to let a decision dominate the people. I know this sounds a little bit kind of abstract, but sometimes the thinking, you can kind of get completely lost in your head. And I look at the situation of fire chiefs dealing with a forest fire maybe similar situations that you've experienced in the in the medical profession as well but in a forest fire you just can't make decisions like in a committee in a democracy you're not going to have a vote on it there's someone in charge and they're going to they're going to make a decision they've got a load of signals a load of information coming at them 
Some of it might be really good. Some of it might be a little bit, you know, shaky, a bit haphazard, a bit untrustworthy. You don't know. But you've got to make a decision because if you don't, the fire is going to get out of control and the and the town's going to burn down. And in a in a business transformation, in the type of transformations that we experience, although a, a town isn't going to burn down, doing nothing is is not an option. The competition's not going to press the pause button and wait for you to sort this out. You've got to get on and do something. And that confidence and willingness to take accountability for the decision is is one of those attributes. And that's one of the reasons I think that really in in an organization, you know, of, of any size, the CEO needs to be the person who is ultimately accountable for the transformation. They can't really delegate it because sooner or later they're going to be faced with a forest fire situation and they've got to take a decision. And it's and it, and only they can take it. And and that's kind of why the decision for HS2, really, it was only the prime minister who could have announced that. Nobody else could could take that as a decision of that magnitude. Um, yeah. You know, it had it had to be him in that instance. No, they're, they're great. They're great examples there. Um, so in, in a sense, if you're taking a look at the the attributes, the qualities, um, because to a greater or less degree, if we say HS2 is one of the prime examples, but a small startup company will still need to maybe make a decision whether or not to cannibalize some of its products, you know, sunset them. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. that still requires the same um, the ability to hold all those fears, those concerns, those worries from your stakeholders, you know, and still be able to unify um, the team energize the team you know yeah and even be evangelical about it so a larger than life character so <clears throat> as you say decisions like of those magnitudes typically we like to say we don't make them every single day we like we like to think we wouldn't want to do a hs2 type decision every single day you know <laughs> but how can no. we practice effective decision making so that we are we, we are steering ourselves into a career that will enable us to operate at yeah. that level, even to make the executive decisions in our own lives. Because remember, a company is no different from you yourself as a business or as a single entity. Yeah. You know, you have to make tough decisions sometimes and being, not being effective decision maker and not being an effective decision maker is something that I rarely see promoted or, or discussed, but we do know it's critical. We do. That that is true. The the personal skill that people need. Some some of the things that people could might help people when it comes to this are, firstly, being able to move on from a decision. So this sort of sense of regret, and if only we could turn the clock back, and you can't. You you have to be. You have to kind of get brutal with this. You're you're living in today. I know this might sound a little bit kind of, you know, new age, but you you you've got to you've got to play the hand you're dealt with, and you make the best decisions you can at the time. You do them for the right reasons, um, and you move on from it. If it didn't work out, you you've got to sort of try to remove your ego from it. So quite often, decision making gets 
uh, get skewed by egos. And that's very, you know, you, you imagine we've all been in a meeting room where there's dominant personalities, where there might be quite um, quiet, reserved personalities. And you can see that a decision is going to come out that is going to favor the person who or the group that is dominant in that room. Mm. So being able to being able to spot those situations, being able to draw out the opinions of the people who are perhaps quieter is 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 firstly one of the ways. The second way is to um, is to try to use the right amount of data to help your decision making. Now this is like this is a real kind of dark art because more we could find ourselves going back to analysis paralysis we just need more data more 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 data there's the expression um that i heard the uh vice chairman of ogilvy rory sutherland use several times which i love and he said um uh, a ceo often uses data like a drunk uses a lamppost they use it for support not for illumination so they're using data they've got an idea and they find data points that support their idea as opposed to support a good decision they're not looking for the data to illuminate the the challenge they're just looking for oh yeah well it says this therefore that that supports my argument so i'm 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 thinking about how when i when i'm working with groups of people how can I make sure that the how can I how can I get them to take a decision at at a speed that they might be uncomfortable with, but in a way that they recognise that we're we're making the right decision. We're make, that making a decision is the right thing, and the one of the ways of doing this is to think about the principles that you're going to use around your transformation project. So if you can start with a set of Basic design principles, an example might be um, simplification is good or um, we want to take the best. Let's say we've got two businesses that we're merging. We want to take the best of both and and build those together. Or the example you gave where you're you're looking at you've got a portfolio of products and you want to kind of sunset some of those. It's It's time to kind of say goodbye to our faithful friend and, you know, that's no longer. So, you know, you're going to take a, a a strong and difficult decision, but everyone's going to be behind it. Even if you didn't like it, the, the principle is that we we kind of decide as one. So some of these principles can be like a really helpful way of cutting through the the noise here. I remember Amazon saying that they had this, this sort of concept of strong opinions, um, but weakly held. So I, I'm going to kind of defend my position, but if, and I'm going to defend the product, let's say I'm the owner of that product in the portfolio and it's my product that's going to be sunsetted. I'm going to defend it come what may, but if the group decision is that it's going to be, we're going to sunset that, then I'm going to get on board with the group decision and that's how we move forward. So these kind of principles can be really helpful to organizations and they're not just kind of vague things. They're not just like, oh, we work as a team or, you know, we, you know, collaboration is good or any kind of vague statements. There's specific principles that help you to get through the, you know, to see the wood for the trees, if you like, when, when you're in the thick of a decision-making situation, you know, th- those are the things. And as a, you probably find this as well, as someone who's brought into organizations to help advise during transformations, 
your fresh pair of eyes are going to be some are going to help the organization when it comes to that decision making you can chair that conversation you can be dispassionate about it you can help to draw out the right things to to keep the, the it's all about momentum it's all about kind of keeping things moving forwards mm. no, no absolutely absolutely and it's then sticking to that because I, I know our audience will be lapping this up in terms of we're touching the area that is rarely spoken about um there's another analogy here. No, not even an analogy first. Let's just go, let's approach it from an interviewee, um, interviewer type mm-hmm. conversation. Like if, I'm, if I want to employ somebody as to be the next um, director to manage up a transformational project, that should be one of your questions. Like describe a time in your life where you had to make a, a fundamental decision that went against yeah. common thinking and what was the outcome, you know, and you'd be surprised in transformation. I rarely see that conversation, that, that question being asked. And when I've interviewed people myself, I've not asked it. So this conversation has sparked this up in me. I just want to expand in, in, in <laughs> do you know how the, do you, do you know how they catch monkeys? Tell me. You know, one, one of the, the, the many techniques, but there's one technique they, they used to catch monkeys Right is where in, in in the bark in the hole of a in the bark of a tree, a truck the hole out a hole just big enough for the monkey to put his hand mm-hmm. in, and in there you put all sorts of treats yeah. that the monkey likes. The monkey puts his hand in there, mm-hmm. right, but he can't get his hand out. Yeah, and then you you uh-huh. go go there and clobber to death the monkey. He will never let go because there's something about right, right, um, right. effective decision making that you have to be able to let go of either your preconceived ideas, yes. your, your wants, your needs for the greater good, which in the monkey's case could be your life. Um, yeah. Too often people say, just hang on there, hang on there, and they ride it until things things collapse. There's a book um, by um, Chris Voss called Never Split the Difference. Have you ever heard of that book? I have heard of that. Yeah, I it's haven't a, read it, but I, oh, I, it's, it's, it's on my list. Oh, it's an excellent book. It's about high stakes hostage negotiation. And it's exactly that. There's no win-win situation in hostage negotiations. There's no yeah. such thing. You know, you got to get all the hostages out. You don't negotiate at all in, on that yeah. premise. What you're going to try and do is um, get the terrorists to, if you're the negotiator, get the terrorists to come to the realization that it's no longer in their best interest to keep the hostages. That's what. Yeah. You, that's what that they're trying to do. By, by building a relationship, there's, uh-huh. there's never splitting the difference in that situation. Well, okay, fine. You can kill half the hostages and the other half you can have. You can have half the money. There's no such thing. <laughs> and that, that, yeah, that, yeah, that to yeah. me, it was the biggest mic drop when I read that book. I was like, wow, wow. And then he, he talks through the psychological processes that he has to go to, understanding who this, if the people are, the, the hostage takers, you know, identifying the black swan, in, in the whole situation yeah. and then using that to yeah. turn the table on. So you're leaving now, you're leaving now and the hostages are staying where they are or whatever the case may be for a more successful outcome. And, and, and more times than off, more times than not, they are successful with that whole approach, never splitting the difference. And that's what you're talking about here. When you've got analysis paralysis and then that leads to decision-making paralysis, it's because... Yeah. At some point, people don't want to let go to off something. 
You know, this is the vision it's true. we had. And, and no matter what, this vision has to be um, actualized. It's almost like driving with your, 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 your partner and um, <laughs> you refusing to use a sat-nav. And you know, you, you're, you say, <laughs> yeah. this is, is this way. <laughs> We've and, all been and there. Your partner do, yeah, yeah. And your partner just decides to commit the cardinal sin and ask a passerby. <laughs> Do you know where <laughs> this destination yeah. is? And that makes you feel so belittled <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think there's something in there that we need to uh, pay closer attention to the art of effective decision-making. And I think when we, before we went on air, we were talking about the, the army and the, some of the decisions generals yeah. have to make in the field, you know, in real time, you know, these are these are people that are comfortable in that space. Yes, and the skill that they're trained in, uh, among the many things that they're trained in, is being able to take all of those feedback signals, all of that situational information, and then overlay that with a strategic awareness of where are they trying to go, where do they need to get their troops, what are the particular things within the landscape that would give them an advantage or a, a disadvantage and how are they going to use their resources to to achieve that and you know we've talked about things like forest fires um the military situations the complexity of launching a shuttle um these are these are sort of highly complex environments. Mm. Even something that is as controlled as a as a shuttle launch, there are you know things that uh, are unpredictable. You know weather things that you can't control or sort of behave. You know sort of patterns of weather that you were unexpected. So your really your your skill is in being able to balance all of that complexity, filter out what it is you need to know about, and then be confident of a of a decision that you're going to take and to and to move on with that and sometimes when you encounter um when you encounter uh programs of work where there's there has been paralysis actually just taking a decision people can feel a huge sense of relief it's like, oh thank god thank god someone took the decision Absolutely. you know uh, we can move on you know there's another there's another aspect to decision making. We talked about analysis paralysis. I think there's another thing that I experience and I witness a lot, which is decision making fatigue. People who are, are just kind of unable to deal with the number of decisions that they're taking. Mm-hmm. Less so in 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 professions where they're trained to react and to take decisions. You know, fire chiefs. Um, nurses and doctors in accident emergency uh military scenarios these people are trained to make decisions if you if you're doing a finance transformation people often aren't trained to make the decisions about technology choices and implementation and all of those kind of uh things you know that that's not their comfort zone and i, I give the example of um I call it the 500-pound shelf. So this is a, a true story from a friend of mine who is having an extension built in their house. Now, if you've ever had any building work done, most people most people think that just getting a plan and selecting a selecting the builder 
is the end of the decision-making process. Not a bit of it. It's just the start. You think you've taken a load of decision to get that far. You aren't even out of the first chapter of the book. And um, this guy was telling me, like, he, w- he would be at work and his wife was, um, she was at home with, with a young child and this building work was being done. So actually loads of the decisions fell to her day in, day out. The builders would be saying, oh, we need to do this. The plumbers are coming tomorrow. The tiling people are coming. You know, what? what so she would be, she was literally on her knees by the end of this with all these decisions. Anyway, at one point, the the fitting the kitchen and the 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 builder, the kitchen fitter, said to her, "How do you feel about putting a shelf in the corner here? I think it would fit really neatly. You can put all your cookery books on it. Um, you know, there isn't any space elsewhere in the kitchen. What do you think?" She said, "Oh yeah, that's a really cool idea. Yeah." Um, and he was like, "Yeah, we could sort of put some lighting on it, and we could kind of shape the corners so they match the thing." Anyway, they got the bill for this. This shelf cost five hundred pounds. And I'm like, what? How on earth did that happen? We could have gone to IKEA and built, bought a shelf for fifty pounds, and it would have been fine. You know, all it needed to do was, you know, house twenty cookery books and a pot plant. How did we pay five hundred pounds for a shelf? And it was, it was this thing around decision fatigue. Basically, as like, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to put some corners on it? Fine. You want to put some lighting? Okay, great. I'm, I'm good. And you don't realize what the what the implications are. So analysis paralysis is one thing. Decision fatigue is is just as big a deal. And I see teams all over the place where they feel like they are just totally swamped with the number of questions and decisions that they're required to make. Mm. And they feel like they're on the spot. They feel like the consequences of these decisions could mean, could have significant implications for them and their colleagues. Um, And, we we don't we don't talk about this, but this this five hundred pound shelf has been like <laughs> it's it's such a, when I tell people like everyone's been there, it's like yeah yeah we had that too. So I don't know how many of these five hundred pound shelves there are around the house around around the country, but um, it, it happens in transformation just just as much. You must have yeah. seen it in, oh, in projects God, you've yeah, been yeah. into. My, my heart is smiling when you're saying that story because. I've got variants, <laughs> variants of that type of story where, um, where yeah. there's a, there's another one where we have like the, if you've got personality that's eager to please, sometimes transformation, decision-making is not the right environment for you to be in because it, you need some yeah. stillness to you to be able to say no. And I, and all too often I find mm-hmm. particularly junior, um, Transformational leaders, change management agents, whatever, wherever they want to be um, called nowadays, they have an inability to to say no. It's almost like they shake in saying the word no. Yeah. And no is a very powerful word. And, and it does release a lot more positive energy to a project because at least if you say no to something, they know where the yeses are going to be found. And they, so you don't go down the wrong yeah. So I think in all these projects that we talk about, there was a time there would have been a moment where somebody could have said, no, let's stop here. Yeah. And no, nobody yeah, had yeah. the fortitude to say no. They either didn't have the ovarian fortitude or the testicular fortitude to say no. And no wasn't said mm-hmm. and things continued down the line. And hence we are in this catastrophic um, um, position. Technology is moving such, such, at such a fast rate. We've got to be comfortable with no. 
we got to be really, really, really comfortable. Say, no, either go, come back with me with more information or no, it stops here, you know. But yeah. if I'm going to take anything from this conversation today, I'm going to ask myself every day before I go to bed, what key decision did I make today? And what was the outcome of the rest of my day from making that decision? And then building from there. I think we all need to reflect on, 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 on this because it's a really is a human problem. HS2 is not a financial problem per se. It's a human problem. No. Yeah, and, and when you reflect on it, so let's say at the end of the day you're thinking about that decision, how did that make you feel? Like that mm. feeling of no mm. and the the sort of freedom that gives you, the sort of the calmness that that, that can respond, that, you know, that, that, oh, thank God someone's made the decision feeling or mm. that, yes, but I said no to that. But, and look what that then unlocked. I closed that door, but look at all the ones that were then opened. That's a really powerful um basic feeling which if you can harness that within teams and you can get people kind of ready to feel that freedom of saying no and moving on and making progress and being able to use their energy in being able to direct their energy at the next challenge that's a really a really valuable skill really you know when when teams can harness that that's when they're really cooking on gas they're really working at, at their sort of you know peak performance i would say fantastic fantastic and andrew i'm very conscious of our time i think we have done a full circle when it comes to analysis paralysis <laughs> decision making and that paralysis we have. you know um, what's that the third one the third one was um decision fatigue you know, being decision fatigue. Yeah, yeah. E- too easy to please. Um, not unable to mm-hmm. say no, unable to handle the difficult conversations. I think this is an area that we can all learn the the skills needed to become more effective leaders. Because it's about leadership, isn't it? You know, um, so that when we're in a position where we own a project or we preside over a project or the buck stops with us, we know how to handle ourselves in those situations. So one more time, Andrew. This is true. Th- yeah. Thanks a lot. One more time. I've lost you there. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. It's been a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed this, Douglas. Fantastic. Fantastic. Catch up next time. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out micdropclub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life, make life boom.